She's good, isn't she? Let's, uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the privilege of being able to gather and sit under the sound of your voice in your word. And we pray this morning that in the midst of life and death, that you might speak to us words that we need to hear. Uh, please help us have hearts that are attentive uh, and minds that are ready to be changed and transformed. And please grow us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have that part of the Bible open in front of you, I want, to, I want you to wrestle with me over an issue. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, what do you do with it? What do you do with it? You're given to have to preach a sermon on it. How do you preach that sermon? What do you say about it? What do you say to friends around you? It's one of those passages that has uh, a deep and profound insight into a very personal experience the Apostle Paul went through. We get a lot of insight into who he is and what he does. But how is that relevant to us? Because in the context of this chapter, there are various verses that speak of universal principles, of truths that are just true, whatever your context and situation. And I want to suggest to you perhaps the key verse here, the one that we want to spend most time on, is there in verse 10. Have a look at your Bible, chapter 7, verse 10. Um, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. That's the verse, I think, that's the key verse of this whole chapter. And what I want to do with this is spend some time there, look back at the context and come back to it. And you might, I find myself also puzzling, how do we do this? How do we speak about this in the context of the news we've just heard? Uh, Dean's loss, the death that we've just experienced. Very serious things and we come together. And what we're going to talk about this morning is largely around the issue of guilt. Because I take it that's what verse 10 is referring to. Godly sorrow. It's a reference to the emotions that relate to guilt, sorrow, grief. Now, how does that relate to such big things that we've talked about together? What has that got to do with life and death? The loss that people are feeling. I want to come back to that and show you how it's incredibly relevant, incredibly important. Guilt, the whole issue of guilt is incredibly relevant for us. You know, we're living through a time when lots of people feel guilty for all kinds of reasons. They don't want to. It's part of our society where there's almost a pandemic of guilt. It's a hugely relevant topic just in its own right, the experiences and emotions surrounding the issue of guilt. You know, if we run a night, I mean, I'd suggest to you, actually, there's, uh, there's one group amongst us that feels it more particularly than others. And I have thought, of, if we ran a night, Monday night, on guilt, dealing with guilt, do you know the group amongst us that we'd be most fully represented? There'd be one segment of our population that'd be there more than any other. Do you know who that group is? It's dangerous to even suggest it, isn't it? Who do you think they are? Mothers. Mothers. I think almost part of the definition of motherhood is to feel guilty. Isn't that right? Mums just live with this constant desire to do better, to do well, to do wonderfully for their children and yet live with a sense all the time that they've failed, they've not done as much as they should. Uh, You know there'd be one group that would rarely turn up to a night on guilt? Older men. And I'm not having a go at you because I'm slowly approaching you. I dare say I'm not there yet. Maybe I should admit that I am. But yeah, it's interesting. Guilt is a part of our world. Many of us feel it very intensely. Others, not as much as we should. But our world, interestingly, we live at a time where our world is almost against the idea of feeling guilty entirely. 
We live in a time where there's lots of guilt around and there's lots of people trying to help us get rid of that feeling that we might live lives where we don't feel guilt anymore. Um, We're not against guilt entirely because there's whole movements in our society at the moment intent on making us feel guilty about all kinds of things. We're not against guilt at all. But um, one of the things almost the whole world agrees on is that religion ought never be a reason for guilt. Isn't that right? So... um, one of the things we want, one of the problems our society senses at the moment is the problem of religion making people feel guilty. And we want to get rid of that. Don't you sense that? That uh, we are working hard to shift what you feel guilty about and make sure religion has no part of it. Well, I want us to run in an entirely different direction this morning. The Bible runs in an entirely different direction. And it relates to the big issues of life, life and death, but this particular topic of guilt. You know, I want to suggest to you from this passage. It matters that we feel guilt. It matters that we learn to feel guilty about things. It matters for our life. It matters that gospel ministries, churches, make people feel guilty. But more, it matters desperately that we get guilt right. That we think carefully about guilt and how it functions in our life and what it is and what it isn't. And that's where I want to take us this morning. It it matters firstly that we know guilt and that we feel the feelings that come from it. Let me look at verse 10, that verse that we started with this morning. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. This is a verse that just drops into the midst of a whole context situation that Paul's personally involved in. It's a principle that he just lands in the situation that he's talking about. But I want, to notice, I want you to notice the set of connections that he draws there in verse 10. Grab your Bible and look carefully at it. There's a series, there's a series of steps Paul makes. Godly sorrow brings repentance. That leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Do you notice those steps? Um, He uses the word salvation. Let's start at the end of it. He talks about leading to salvation, that leads to salvation. When he talks about salvation, he's talking about eternal salvation. He's used the whole language of salvation earlier in the letter. Of course, he talks about in chapter 6, now is the day of salvation. Now is the time to find the favour of God and be saved eternally. That's what he's concerned about with these people, that they come to eternal salvation. Um, Salvation, it's critical. But critical to salvation is, do you see the word that comes before it? Repentance. You see, what is it that leads to salvation? Repentance. Someone needs to come to repentance. Now, what is repentance? Just a quick little thing on repentance. Repentance is uh, it's, it's a change of mind, literally. It means turning around. And uh, often trying to, it means turning around 180 degrees, not 360 because you'd be back where you started from. We often do that little thing of do a whole 360 degree turn, well, you're just going back in the same direction. You knew, really. 180 degree turn is what repentance is, all right? It's I was going this way and I realised I was wrong. Repentance means turning to go the other way. What's the way I was going? Living for myself, pursuing my interests, my ambitions, and what I want in life. And repentance is realising that life's not about me. I was made to live for God, to live under his authority and his rule and live for him. And he died for me through his son that I might be able to live for him, no longer for myself. Repentance is to turn from living for himself to live now for God. 
And that's necessary to be saved. But what is it that brings repentance? You go one step prior. Verse 10. Godly sorrow brings repentance. Repentance is necessary for salvation. It's massive. But what is it that brings repentance? Well, he says it's godly sorrow. Sorrow. Now, notice that he uses the word sorrow there and not guilt. Because properly speaking, guilt is not a feeling. It's a state you're in. It's a state of being guilty, objectively. Now, guilt may have, the, the objective state of being guilty may have all kinds of feelings that cluster around it. Feelings of, I've done something wrong. Feelings of sorrow, regret, remorse, shame, grief. There may even be a sense of hopelessness with your sorrow, your feelings of guilt. Helplessness. You may find yourself sleepless with your feelings of guilt. Tears and fears that are part of it, guilt. And I want to come back to all of that in a moment. But notice he uses the word sorrow, not guilt, because the feeling is sorrow, which relates to being guilty. And what the Apostle Paul is saying is that before you come to repentance, to turning back to God, there will be a necessary conviction of your guilt before God. A sense of sorrow over the way you have failed to be what you ought to be. A sense of sorrow and grief and remorse and regret, despair even perhaps over how you've been towards God. There'll be the feelings of sorrow that give rise to the need to turn, repent and come back to God. There is a kind of sorrow that is necessary for salvation. Far from the feelings of guilt being something we ought to get rid of in society, they're actually essential for our eternal life together. Which means if, if this is so, we can't be against guilt feelings. It matters that people come to an appropriate sense of sorrow, of feelings of guilt for their eternal future. That's why churches, that's why healthy churches need to be places where you don't just get inspired... You don't just get encouraged, you don't just get affirmed, but you're brought to feel guilty. Healthy churches must be in the ministry of helping people come to a sense of sorrow and grief and regret. That's part of the ministry. The Holy Spirit of God in John's Gospel, we're told, one of his jobs is to convict the world of sin. One of the reasons he comes into the world is to convict us and bring us to godly sorrow. We need it. And this is what the Apostle Paul was about. A part of his ministry was actually about bringing people to a godly sorrow, to grief over their sin. And that's the context. So let's have a quick look at the context. The context is Paul deliberately and intentionally triggering the shame, guilt, sorrow, regret of the Corinthians. Look at verse 12. Let's see if we can put this together. So even though I wrote to you 
It was neither on account of the one who did the wrong nor on account of the injured party. So what you have here is a reference straight away to the fact that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. Now, it's the letter that he's, written, that he's talking about there is probably not 1 Corinthians. It's probably a letter between 1 and this letter. Uh, you, you get there in verse 8, uh, evidence of what he's talking about here again. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter... So he's written a letter that caused the Corinthian sorrows. What's gone on? Well, we don't know, actually. We're trying to guess, right? But a possible reconstruction is this, that um, there's been sexual immorality in the church, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. You hear about this in his first letter to them, uh, of a kind that even the pagans don't indulge in. And it's quite possible uh, that what's gone on there is triggered another engagement by the apostle to the church to call them to account, to rebuke them, it's referenced as a severe letter that Paul writes. He sends off this severe letter calling the church to account and sends Titus actually too to follow up on it. It's a big issue. He's deeply concerned about the church. Now why does he do that? Why does he let write a letter to the Corinthians rebuking them? A severe letter calling them to account? Why does he do that? Knowing it will produce sorrow and grief and regret and remorse. Why does he do that? Because there are some things in life that if we don't deal with them, they'll kill us eternally. They'll kill us spiritually. And I just want you to again notice how countercultural this is. In our society, we are seeking to rid ourselves of Christian culture, actually. There's a, there's a whole move to try and get rid of Christian thinking. And the roots upon which we sit. Um, we're, we're, we're trying to get rid of Christian thinking because it's fostered so much guilt amongst us. Always feeling guilty. Just let people be. They have their own morality, their own views, their own ethics. Just let people live their lives is our cultural setting. And if there's a God, if there is, he'll be okay with the fact that we've all just been true to ourselves and been authentic and it'll all be okay. And Jesus says no. Oh, Jesus says, wide is the path that leads to destruction. Narrow is the road that leads to life. And only a few find their way on it. And Jesus comes with tears to Israel and says, how I long to gather you together, but you are unwilling. There are some things in life that if we don't deal with them, will lead us to destruction. And many are on that path, says Jesus. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, says Jesus, will enter the kingdom of God. Not everyone who professes to be a Christian will enter the kingdom. Wow. There are deep warnings in the scriptures about things that matter. Paul says in 1, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. It's possible to have received the grace of God, but receive it in vain so that you've not really received it, you've not understood the gospel, and you find yourself not right with God in eternity. These things are of deep... We need a total rethink that there are some things in, in life that matter so much. And here's where I think it connects to what the news we've just heard, friends. Um, life will end soon. This is not a game. We're not just drifting through life to make the most of it and have the best time we can. 
Our life is very brief. We're here for a moment and we will go. And I tell you, it'll happen to the fittest of us. It doesn't matter how you fight against ageing and, and the degradation of life. and so on. It doesn't matter how much you fight against it, death will get you. All of us. Sorry, I was sitting with Tanya. Just, we've, we've, there's a number of us who have been together for a long time now and we have had lots of grief over the years as we've seen one another age, sicken and die. And, and, and we were just sharing, that's the world we're in. We're going to see a lot more of it because death hunts us down. It haunts us. It matters, therefore, that we are right for eternity. Heaven and hell are at stake, says Jesus. The broad way, the narrow way, only a few are on it. Making sure we're on that narrow road is everything about life. That's why we gather here together week by week, to keep being reminded of the critical nature of these things. Do you know salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you living a life consistent with that knowledge of Christ and the salvation that's found in him? Do you imagine that it doesn't matter really what you do as long as you... Part of the job of church is to trigger your guilt. It's to trigger your sorrow at sin, that our consciences might be pricked. We need to fight for people and their salvation. You know, I saw a very interesting uh, YouTube some time ago now. It was, um, it was a talk show. Drew Barrymore. Do you remember the actress Drew, Drew Barrymore? Uh, Keanu Reeves. Keanu Reeves, the uh, Matrix actor. She was talking about how she's a lover, not a fighter. And everyone's going, ah, oh, so beautiful. Lover, not a fighter. I want to be a lover, not a fighter. Keanu Reeves, like a shot, said, he said, you can't love and not fight. Because if you're a lover, you've got to be a fighter to fight for that which you love. Wow! Wisdom from Hollywood. I was, I was in shock. And he actually, I think he was in shock. He stood up and he went, wow, did I just say that? Wow. And he roamed around the stage looking and she said, what do you mean? What are you talking about? And I'm thinking, are you a child? How do you know not know what he means? If you love things, you've got to fight for them. You've got to care. And Paul loved. He loved the Corinthians. You see, come back a little bit further in this context. Let me show you the journey of this great insight into the Apostle Paul, chapter 7, verse 2. Make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have exploited. I don't say this to condemn you. I've said that you have such a place in our hearts. Listen to Paul. You have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. We love you. I've spoken to you with great frankness. I take pride in you. I'm greatly encouraged in all our troubles by John. But when we came to Macedonia, we had no rest. We were harassed at, no, at every point. Conflicts on the outside, fears within. What were the fears within? Conflicts are obvious. What were the fears within? The fear that his letter to the Corinthians landed so badly that they've rejected him, that the relationship's fractured. He is distressed about this letter. That's why verse 8, even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I don't regret it, though I did regret it. I see my letter hurts you. He, regret, he wrote this 
severe letter, this warning, rebuke, and he goes, oh, should I push send? How are they going to receive it? He sends it. Why does he send it? Because there are some things in life that matter so much, we need to risk relationship over them. Things of eternity, things of life, death, heaven and hell. So Paul sends the letter, but he lives in anxiety and fear about how it lands. In fact, in chapter 2, you remember we looked at this some time ago, um, when I was in Troas to preach the gospel, found the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I didn't find my brother Titus there. Why? Why did that matter? Because Titus had gone to the Corinthians to find out how the letter had landed. And Paul was sleepless, worrying about how the letters landed, waiting for Titus to come back with news. He goes, he's in Troas, he's preaching the gospel, a great door opens, he can't be content because he hasn't heard what's happened yet. Have you ever had that experience with someone? Full of anxiety about what I've said and how it's been received and what's going to happen. That was the Apostle Paul. Is this a surprise to you? This is not the way people picture Paul. Most people picture Paul as the kind of bulletproof John Wayne who strides through life just shooting off missiles and telling people what they ought to do and impervious to all pain. That's not the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was vulnerable, deep-hearted. He loved people. He wrote this letter, but it cost him. He lived with anxiety and distress because he loved this group of people. In, in 1 Thessalonians, it's interesting, in 1 Thessalonians, Paul says to the Thessalonians, um, hearing news about how they were going, he says, now I can live again because I live and die with you. This is a man who is deeply heart-connected to others and yet still writes the letter. Because some things matter so much that he is prepared to risk his relationship with the people he loves the most. He was full of fear within. It's the reason he doesn't stay in Troas. He moves on. You know, this is just to keep reinforcing this point that there are some things we've got to speak about. And produce sorrow and guilt in people, even though it would land badly. Now, just just a quick aside there, I'll come back to this, I hope, if we have time. Um, We do need to speak to others about things, but the Apostle Paul gives us a lesson in how to do it. Don't do it to get it off your chest, you see. Don't do it as therapy for yourself. I just feel all of this anxiety about what's happening with my friend and I just need to get it off my chest with them. Shut up. Go and talk to a therapist. (laughs) Don't do therapy with your friend. Make sure you deal with your own stuff. This is what Jesus says. Look at the speck in your own eye before you deal with the log in someone else's. Go and work out what's going on for you before you go and deal. Make sure that if you're going to talk to someone about it, you're like the Apostle Paul, you'll only do it with an awareness of great risk, great anxiety... Fear because of your love for the other. It's love for the other that drives this. Do it with great care and reluctance. Do it gently that it might lead to repentance and not just smash a person. There's all kinds of things to learn from the Apostle Paul. Deal with your own stuff before you deal with other people's stuff. It matters that we learn to feel guilt. Guilt feelings are good. 
They're critical for salvation. But, last big point, it matters what kind of guilt you feel. And here I think Paul gives us some of the most important teaching on guilt in the Bible. You see, have a look with me at verse 8 again. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I don't regret it. Though I did regret it, I see my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I'm happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not in harm, harmed in it. Let me just pick up a few thoughts there. You were, you were led to be sorrowful as God intended. Verse 9, there's a kind of sorrow that God intends and there's a kind of sorrow he doesn't intend. What's the kind of sorrow God intends? There are sometimes, well, the kind of sorrow God intends is sorrow, grief, regret over things you've actually done wrong. That's the sorrow God intends. But the problem is, lots of us feel guilt about things we ought not feel guilty about. So the Apostle Paul's not concerned just to raise, to make people feel guilty. He wants to get people to feel guilty about the things we ought to feel guilty about. The kind that God intends. You see, the danger for many of us is that we have overly sensitive consciences. There's the person who's always amongst us beating themselves up, always feeling guilty, always down on themselves, always crushed. It's the person perhaps who's been raised by overly strict parents. I don't know the psychology of all of this, but the, who, has a, who have a conscience about things. You know what a conscience is? It's like a smoke alarm. A conscience is like a smoke alarm where the intended purpose of a conscience is to trigger when there's smoke. Otherwise, it's quiet. And so conscience is about when you transgress morally, when you transgress God, when you offend against another, and your conscience is meant to go off like an alarm. If it's not going off, it's either you've not done something wrong or your conscience is broken. It'll be a bit of both. But you see, there's some of us who, whose consciences are just so sensitive, they're triggering all the time when they ought not. Issues of Christian freedom, and yet you're still, you won't eat fish. You, is it, you won't eat meat on Fridays, you'll only eat fish. And to have, go and have meat on a Friday just makes you feel all, I'm sinning, I'm doing something wrong. No, Christian freedom. Don't have a feel, feelings of guilt about things you ought not feel guilty about. It's, this, it's the single mum who is financially strapped, just coping, who hears about the church deficit. And feels terrible guilt that they need to give more, they need to give more. They need... No, you need to do what you're doing and keep going, you see. Some of us need to feel much more guilty about that and others not at all. Getting to feel guilty about what you should feel guilty about is part of the journey of Christian maturity. The person who finds fault with themselves when there's no fault, that's not God's intention. But there is a God-intended guilt. Um, discerning the difference between overly sensitive and not sensitive enough, that's the journey of Christian growth. And I think lots of mums need to wind back on their conscience and lots of older men 
need to ratchet it up massively. Um, We're all different in this. Seeing the freedom we have in Christ, where it applies, where it doesn't. Um, Now, we're not always helpful for each other here. Um, uh, I, I stalk people on Facebook just to get it out there. <laughs> I don't actually, but I, I, I check Facebook every now and then to see what the world's doing or what everyone's doing. And um, I've got a policy never to do anything on it, but I just watch what's happening. And what's interesting to me is that uh, on occasion, and I've not seen this for a long time, so I can't, don't feel guilty, right? But I notice every now and then that someone will voice a sense of guilt over something they've done. And almost certainly you can predict what will happen next. There'll be a pile on of people who say, no, 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 no. No, you did the right thing. Everything's fine. You're awesome. You're amazing. Think positive. And I think you've got no idea. Maybe they did do the thing wrong and need to feel guilty about it. How do you know they don't? Because we don't like people feeling guilty. But part of our Christian maturity is realising that sometimes people do need to feel guilty because that's a God-given conviction of sin by the Holy Spirit, which will lead to repentance, which will lead to salvation. Let people sit in it. Don't be too quick to rescue people from their feelings. Sometimes we need to let people sit in it. Now, sometimes we do need to rescue people. I'll come to that in a second. You see, there's a kind of guilt that God intends, which means there's a kind that God doesn't intend. Get get over that one. But the last step I want to draw your attention to is there's a kind of guilt that's godly and one that's worldly. You look there in verse 10. Now back to our verse. Godly sorrow, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow, worldly sorrow brings death. Two kinds of sorrow, godly, worldly. Godly, healthy sorrow, mature sorrow. Worldly, unhealthy, immature. What's the difference? Well, the difference in the text is that one leads to repentance and the other doesn't. There's a kind of guilt, a kind of feelings of guilt, sorrow, grief, sadness, remorse, that goes nowhere. That just leaves you in a spiral. That just brings despair and depression. That constantly brings you down. The kind that has no way forward, no future hope, no way out. Because, and here I think is the distinction. One of the, I've got two distinctions for you. I think the problem with worldly guilt is that it happens in the context of no grace. It happens in the context without grace. You see, two kinds of guilt feelings, a worldly guilt feeling, sorrow, a godly kind. The godly kind leads to repentance. The worldly kind leads to death. One happens outside the context of grace... The other happens deeply aware of the kindness and grace of God. The Spirit of God works feelings of guilt because He is the God who delights to show mercy. 
He's the God who delights to show mercy. Not reluctantly. It was one of the first verses I memorized years ago. He's the God who delights to show mercy. He loves to show guilty people mercy. Just realize, realize you are guilty. Have the experience of the sorrow and grief and remorse and regret that leads you to turn to the God who loves to show you forgiveness. And so repentance then happens because I've got somewhere to go. I've got someone to go to. God is the one who delights to show mercy to the brokenhearted, to the ones who grieve their sin, to the guilty who realise it. And that changes everything. You see, what's the point of guilt in a world with no forgiveness? And that's the problem with our world. It's a world without forgiveness. And so there's nothing to do with guilt. Guilt is destructive, entirely destructive. As the world cuts off any sense of, of, of the God beyond us, the God of the Bible, the biblical God who's the God of love and grace and forgiveness, guilt just ends up destroying us. And so, of course, our world wants to get rid of it. But in a world where there is a God who sent his only son into the world to die for us, wow, who so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not... In that kind of world, godly sorrow will mean you can turn to him and find forgiveness for whatever you've done. No matter how deep and horrible the sin, there's forgiveness with God. What a blessing. He is the God who, chapter 5, made him who had no sin to be sin for us. That in him we might become the righteousness of God. I I love chapter 5. Jez helped us so wonderfully. It's God who does all of this. It's God who's reconciling the world to himself. It's God who's not counting our sins against him. It's God doing it all because God's the God of love. He's the holy God. And so sin is horrible. But he's the holy, loving God. So that when you turn back to him, he'll receive you. And there's forgiveness. His conviction of sin is always, always done in the context of grace. If he brings you to see your guilt, if he takes you into the feelings of sorrow for sin, grief over a failing, regret, remorse, if he takes you into those feelings, he intends it that you might flee to him. That's the point. The godly sorrow leads us to turn back to the God of mercy, repent and find salvation. Worldly sorrow just wallows and wallows because it's got nowhere to go. Um, Let me give you one further difference. And just notice on this, actually, that the feelings of sorrow and remorse are not the same as repentance. Just feeling sorrowful about your sin is not the same as repenting. That sorrow needs to lead to repentance, turning back to God for salvation. Judas just wallowed in remorse. Peter was full of remorse that led him to turn back to God. The difference is massive. Because here's the last thing to say. 
One of the further differences between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow is the orientation that you have. Godly sorrow, godly sorrow looks outward to the person wronged. Worldly sorrow looks inward. Godly sorrow looks outward to the person wronged. Worldly sorrow looks inward. Godly sorrow has its first concern with the person I've hurt, who is ultimately God. And so to feel sorrow for sin is to first and foremost to feel the offence I've caused another. Worldly sorrow, its chief concern is with me. What does that mean about how people see me? If you bring to me a sin I've committed, worldly sorrow's first instinct is shame. You know the difference between guilt and shame? Guilt is an awareness I've done something wrong, a sorrow, regret, remorse about it that turns me to repent. Worldly sorrow is about shame. Shame needs someone else to be concerned about. Let, let me explain. Um, you can steal money from an organisation and not feel guilty about it, but when someone finds out about it, you're embarrassed, that's shame. See the difference? Shame is concerned about me not being who I thought I was. Shame is concerned about how you'll now think of me less than I think I am. Shame fights for dignity, which makes it a terrible emotion. It fights for self-worth and dignity because it's all concerned about me. Have you felt that? One of the problems with shame is the sense that I have a certain picture of myself, I'm this kind of person, and someone brings to me the possibility I'm not who I think I am, shame is triggered and I either fight or flee. I fight the person who's bringing this possibility I'm not who I want to be. Because I won't let you make me think I'm not what I am. I'm going to insist on still being that person. And so what you're claiming can't be true. Because that's not who I believe myself to be. You are in deep trouble. If you're in that place. Because you'll never come to terms with your guilt. It's about embarrassment that others think I'm less than what I want to be. And so we fight or we run. Godly sorrow. Godly sorrow looks outward in the context of grace and so is able to face that I'm not who I want to be and be okay because there's a God who loves me, who has died for me, because there's forgiveness. In fact, godly sorrow assumes that I'm probably worse than you think I am. This for me has been one of the most beautiful releases that if you bring an accusation of sin against me, I think I'm probably worse than you think I am. So whatever accusation you bring, yeah, if you only knew, it's probably ten times worse. Godly sorrow brings that kind of self-awareness, which means, the end of chapter 7, verse 11 and 12, there'll be an eagerness, an eagerness to set things right. There'll be a desire to be consumed with change and repentance for the sake of others. There'll be a desire to honour God more than your own pride. 
We're living in a world that's got an epidemic of guilt because the world's got nowhere to go. It keeps squashing any sense that I might be less than I want to be because it's got nowhere to go. But what happens when you squash the feelings of guilt? They pop out in all kinds of other places. They mess with your life in all kinds of areas. Your relationships get fractured and fragmented. Shame becomes part of the thing you fight against and so you can't hear properly what's happening. That's our world. It's our world. But the beauty of the Christian faith, the beauty of the Christian faith, is that there's hope. There's always hope. There's forgiveness. There's restoration. There's a possibility of a fresh start every day. And there's a liberation and freedom to face the truth that you're not who you think you are or who you want to be. And that's okay. You can be honest and find the loving grace of God to cleanse, forgive, transform, renew, restart every day. Do you know that? Do you know that experience? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask that that might be our experience throughout uh, our fellowship together. That you might cause those of us who are in this place, uh, part of this church, watching online even, that you might cause us to know the beauty of your grace, that we are then enabled to be honest about ourselves, feel appropriate the, the regret, the sorrow, the grief over our sin. And let that be the kind of grief and sorrow, the godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Help us keep turning back to you. Help us keep looking to you for grace, for transition, for transformation, for change. Pray those, for those amongst us who perhaps don't know this, who are still fighting the shame and embarrassment, that you might bring them to a new place of freedom and liberation in Christ. Please help uh, us minister together lovingly with each other. But we pray for our world too, that you might cause your gospel, the truth of who you are, to to, to resound out through our area, community, country, world, that people actually realise the truth of who you are, the holy God who is gracious, that people might turn back to you and find life. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I thought it fitting to lead us now in a time of confession.